Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. Today there are two uh, scripture lessons there in your bulletin, also on the screens before you. And so you may want to turn there in your own Bible, Ephesians 2 and then John chapter 3. Uh, However you take the words in this morning, I invite you to hear these words of scripture with an open heart. Uh, Hearing again God's teaching and God's will for us and uh, God's love for us. So beginning with Ephesians 2 chapter 1. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of our flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that one may boast, for we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Today we read from the Gospel according to John. I invite you to hear these words from chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I have said you must be born from above. For the wind blows where it chooses, you hear the sound of it, you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. May God bless our reading of the Holy Scriptures, and let us say together, Amen. Will you join me in a spirit and attitude of prayer? Yes, God, we ask for you to bless our reading and our hearing of these ancient and sacred words. God, as we read the words of Scripture, we sense your Spirit among us, within us, guiding our reading and our hearing, shaping and reshaping our souls according to your love and grace. God, may all of our acts of worship today, our singing and our fellowship, our sharing and our offerings and gifts, may these be acts in which we grow to better understand your love for our lives and how we might respond as faithful disciples. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Uh, Reverend and Professor David Wilkinson, in his book on prayer, he has this wonderful um, explanation about how we might think about our prayer. And it, and it really enlightened prayer for me, and I want to share it with you today. It might help, help you in thinking about your prayer as well. He says in that book, when we think about the world and the way the world works, and we think about how God might be involved in the world, there are some ways in which we might pray for God to intervene that make sense, and there are other ways where we might not necessarily think that God would intervene. Right? And he uses the weather, for example. He says, for example, we all understand that the seasons uh, follow a particular pattern. Right? We expect that summer will come after spring, that fall will come after summer, that winter will come after fall. And it has followed this pattern for years and century and for millennia. Right? And we know this has to do with the way the earth spins and the way it's uh, distance from the sun and the way things move. And so we expect that pattern to continue. And in fact, we would find it very odd. We would find it irrational. We would find it spiritually inconsistent to pray to God that winter would follow spring. Right? Would you do that? No, right? That just, that just doesn't make sense, right? We know the way the seasons work. We don't pray that in March we would have freezing temperatures. Oh, wait, we, we do, right? We expect that things will get warmer as it goes towards summer. Now, Wilkinson says, on the other hand, there are things about the weather that don't necessarily follow a predictable pattern. For example, when we have dry seasons, it is reasonable for us to hope and pray for rain, right? Because the daily weather patterns, the weekly weather, weather patterns that cause rain or cause dry seasons, those do change, right? Those don't necessarily have the same year-long consistency. And so when we've gone two or three, four weeks in the summer with very little rain, it makes sense. God, would you please intervene in our weather patterns and the way the clouds form and the jet streams and the temperatures? God, would you please intervene and cause there to be rain? That's a, that's a reasonable prayer, Right? That's a very different prayer than praying for winter to follow spring. Right? I think Wilkinson's really helpful there, and he takes that a little bit further. He says, for example, the same is true in our own lives. Like, like we would never pray in our own lives that we could somehow grow younger. Right? Now, we may want to grow younger, but we know that that's irrational. That's not the way the world works. That's not the way the world was designed. We are going to get older. Our bodies are going to change, and they're sometimes going to be weaker and more difficult as they do so. Right? We don't pray to God that we would grow younger. And yet we might pray to God that God would intervene in a particular health care concern or crisis. Right? We might pray that God would be at work in our surgery or in our cancer treatment or in the medicines that we're taking. Right? So those are ways in which our lives are not necessarily predetermined. Right? Those are ways in which we think that God could intervene in a miraculous and special way. Right? So I think Wilson's framework for prayer there is really helpful. Right? Some things about the way the world works and the way our lives work are kind of inevi inevitable. That's the way things have been designed by God. But there are other things about the way the world works that might could change. And if it's an area that might could change, it's reasonable to pray to God to intervene and to change those things according to God's good will. So I want to take that thought just a little bit further with you. When you think about your spiritual life, particularly your life of sin, right? The things in your life that you find challenging and difficult, the places in where you know you often come up short. When we think about our spiritual life and we think about our shortcomings, do we think about them more like the seasons right? Is our spiritual life and our sinful life, our shortcomings, are they more like the seasons? Is it inevitable? Is it just something we do? Is it just a pattern that's a, at work in our life and we really don't have a way to overcome it? 
Or do we think about our spiritual shortcomings as more like the rain, right? That we might see a way for God to intervene and change, right? In other words, I'll just say it much more plainly, is our sinning inevitable? Is it inevitable that we're going to continue to go on sinning and living in sin and dealing with the difficulties of our sin our whole life? Or is there hope that God might intervene, that God might shape and reshape us so that we might come to to know a new life and a different life? that we might be transformed. That's kind of the question before us today, this fourth Sunday of Lent, as we gaze upon the cross, as we prepare for Holy Week, and as we look toward Easter. Now, I worked pretty hard on this sermon. It's pretty deep. We're going to kind of do some thinking about the cross. I don't have a lot of funny stories. I, I did not bring a donut for you like Chase did. That was a really helpful illustration. And so if you were listening to Chase with the children, he sort of got the sermon started off on a good note. What I want to do today is think with you a little bit about what we see when we look at the cross. And there are some classic and biblical ways of thinking about the cross, framing the cross. And then I think that will help us answer that question about the inevitability of our sin. So in Berlin's book, many of you are reading it, this restored book, uh, chapter 4 here, uh, he deals with, with some of these themes that I'm going to talk about today. Because what he's trying to do in, in this chapter is to get us to, to grapple with and to realize the, the transformational power of the cross right? What's happening in the cross? Why is it good news for us? And the theories that go with that, uh, there's a handful of them. And so today we're just going to hit on them real lightly. Each of these could be their own sermon series, their own book. Uh, We're not going to dig deep, but just want to try to remind you of what we see when we see the cross and why it's good news for us. So the first thing, let's start there. We're going to do about four or five of these. You might find it helpful to kind of jot down some notes as we go through them. The first thing when we look at when we see the cross, the classic teaching around the cross is to see Jesus as a sacrifice, right? To see Jesus' death on the cross of a sacrifice. Now that language of sacrifice predates even the Bible, right? Many religious traditions in the ancient world practice religious sacrifices, often sacrificing animals or grain or even humans, right? We have some, uh, some old um, letters and some indications that in the Babylonian Empire they would sacrifice humans. So that was not uncommon. And so when we get the language of sacrifice in the Bible, that's not an entirely new thing. What's unique in the Bible is the way in which those sacrifices are performed. The main text for this is Leviticus 16. You can go back I can read it there. I'm just going to remind you a little bit. Leviticus 16 is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur in the Jewish tradition, the Day of Atonement. And what would happen on the Day of Atonement is that the priests and the people of Israel, they would bring two goats, two goats to the front of the worship place, and they would gather those two goats there for two different purposes. One was to be sacrificed. There was a blood offering. One goat was sacrificed. Its life was given up. The other goat was prayed over. So they brought a goat forward. They prayed over the goat. And in praying over the goat, what they what they since they were doing is they were transmitting the sins of the people of Israel onto the goat, right? I know some of you show goats, right? This is a little bit different here, right? But, but they're transmitting the sins of the people of Israel onto the goat. And then what did they do with the goat that took on all the sins? They sent it out into the wilderness, right? They just left it be. They, they sent it away from the people. So all the sins go into the goat, and then the goat goes away. And this is where we get the phrase, a scapegoat, right? Scape, S-C-A-P-E, scapegoat. So this system of atonement in the Old Testament continued for many years. Every year, right, people would come forward, two goats. One goat was sacrificed by the priest. One goat received the sins of the people, and it went out into the wilderness. So that's been in place for a long time. Notably, the people of Israel do not practice human sacrifice. This is one thing that sets apart the people of Israel and the Jewish tradition from those other traditions around it. So in Jesus particularly in the, in the Hebrew, the writer of the, the book of Hebrews kind of brings these themes together in Jesus. 
Hebrews says that Jesus uh, represents these two goats in a particular way. Not only the two goats, but even the priest performing the sacrifice. That in Jesus, this once and final and perfect sacrifice has been made. That Jesus willingly allows himself to be put to death on a cross, and the shedding of his blood performs a real similar function to the blood sacrifice in the Old Testament. Further, Jesus allows the sins of the world, the sins of the people, to be, to be placed upon him. He receives the sins of the world, sort of like that scapegoat. And so Jesus takes on the sins of the world and is put to death, and as Hebrews says, is the once and final and perfect sacrifice. So this Old Testament lens of sacrificing something annually for the atonement of the people, for the sins of the people, Jesus ends that system uh, by being himself the, the final perfect sacrifice. This is the way we often talk about the cross. Now sometimes people will get a little sidetracked here and they will talk about the, the sort of wrath of God expelled upon Jesus. We, we don't usually use that language because what's going on there, of course, is that Jesus himself is, is part of the Godhead. Right? This is what makes Jesus' sacrifice unique. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Jesus isn't just some random human that's receiving punishment, right? Jesus is God's own self who steps in for us, who intercedes, who becomes the sacrifice. Jesus is God's own self who takes on the sin of all of humanity. So we no longer have to make those sort of sacrifices. We no longer have to stand in judgment for the sins that we've committed. So that's number one, right? When we look at the cross, we should see Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' death, standing in for our punishment and for our own sacrifices. And this is the way we often talk about the cross, Jesus Christ as a sacrifice. Of course, there are other themes in the Bible and, and themes of Jesus' ministry as well. When we read about Adam and Eve and the, the way in which they turned away from God's will in the opening uh, chapters of Genesis, they not only began to, to go down a path of, of sin, right, but they also entered into mortality in a new way, right? The Garden of Eden was this perfect eternal paradise, and yet with sin, now too Adam and Eve have received mortality. Their, their lives will not go on forever. So it's not that sin and death are equal, but with sin came death, right, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And so with death came all those other sort of things that our bodies do that frustrate us, right? Coughs and pneumonia and flu and sprained ankles and bumped elbows and broken bones. And perhaps even in the ancient world, they had things like cancer, though they wouldn't have known that or called it that. And so what were perfect bodies to begin with have become imperfect bodies that stand in need of, of all sorts of care. Fast forward, of course, to Jesus' ministry. One of the hallmarks of Jesus' ministry is his healing uh, his healing care for those he encounters. There are so many stories, you know many of them, the centurions, uh, the servants, uh, the lepers, there are so many, the blind, the deaf, who are healed by Jesus' power and care. When you read the Gospels of Jesus, this is who Jesus is. He is the one who goes around healing those who stand in need of, of this miraculous sort of care. A favorite story is uh, the hemorrhaging woman where, where Jesus is in a crowd of people. People are pushing in on him. There's a woman who, who is ill. She's been hemorrhaging blood and she doesn't know why. No one's been able to cure her. Uh, and she reaches through the crowd and touches Jesus' garment. Uh, and the text says that the power went out from him, right? That the power went out from him and Jesus could sense that someone was touching his garment and that they were being healed. That's a wonderful story, this sort of illustrative of, of who Jesus is and and how Jesus' ministry unfolds. That Jesus' heal, healing power, it just sort of naturally flows forth from him. We think about the story of, of Lazarus, where Jesus brings Lazarus back to life. This is who Jesus is and what Jesus does. 
So when we think about the life of Jesus, we see God becomes human. God lives as one of us in a human body, a frail human body. We can think about Jesus maybe stubbing his toe sometimes and going, dang it, right? That hurt, right? In fact, Jesus lives a human body so much so that Jesus dies as a human. And so when we look at the cross, we see this miraculous thing that God, the creator, God with all power and authority and wisdom, uh, God, the, the most powerful force there is, that God lived among us in a human way, that God healed those who were in need, and that God died as one of us. In other words, in Jesus, all of the, the brokenness of humanity, not just the spiritual brokenness, but the, but the mortality of humanity, the things about our bodies that don't work as we wish they would, all of those things were gathered into Jesus' own body. Even our death, even our dying, when we come to the end of our lives and, and our bodies no longer function, even our dying, Jesus took on our dying and in so redeemed our death and in the resurrection made way for a new life. And so when we look at the cross of Jesus, we see someone who who came forth to heal us, not only spiritually, but to heal us physically, who cared for those whom he encountered, who wished the best for them, who offered healing where possible, and even redeemed our dying so that we have no fear of death any longer. Sometimes we call Jesus the great physician or the wounded healer, right? He joined us in our weakness. He redeemed our mortal bodies so that we might know eternal life. The next thing we might think of when we think about Jesus is his victorious power. These, of course, are themes from the Bible as well. There are themes in Scripture about the spiritual forces of good and evil. So many of our classic uh, literature examples, they deal with this as well, right? Good and evil kind of working against themselves. That's certainly a theme in the Bible. Uh, one of the most important stories along this lines is the story of Exodus, right? We have God's people who have been subjugated, who have been made slaves. They're working for an evil Pharaoh. And so God intervenes for the sake of his people. They're released. They go forth. Evil is punished, right? And then we have other stories later in the Old Testament that deal with similar themes around the Exodus, around the Assyrians, around the Babylonians. There's, there's these evil powers at work in the world. And one thing we're hoping from God is that God would intervene and that those powers would be destroyed. Well, the Apostle Paul is particularly helpful here when we think about Jesus and his ministry, his life, his death, and his resurrection. That Jesus came as a sacrifice, yes, according to some of the Old Testament codes. That Jesus came as a human and lived among us and took on our illness and sickness and even death. But also Jesus came to pronounce victory over the evil powers of this world. You can think about stories like Matthew 4 where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. The devil comes to him and says, you know, you can have all this if you will only follow me. And so we're, we're called to read Jesus' ministry also as a, a sort of spiritual battle within Jesus, that Jesus is fighting not only on the ground healing people, but Jesus is fighting the evil powers that extend even beyond our, our understanding of creation. Of course, as we read the story of Jesus, as we prepare for Holy Week, as we prepare for Good Friday, we know that, that his followers turned against him, that the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities plotted together to have him killed, and that he died on a cross. In Colossians, Paul says this remarkable thing. He says that in dying on the cross, uh, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities of the world and triumphed over them. Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities of the world and triumphed over them. Well, how is that so? 
Well, the rulers and the authorities of the world, as Paul sees them and as we know them as well, often rule with violence and, and, and even death, right? The way in which terrible rulers of the world have, have gathered people under their power is by, by fear and by threat. And we see the same thing happening in Jesus' time. He becomes a little bit of a nuisance to the Jewish leaders. He becomes somewhat of a concern to the Roman leaders. So what do they do with him? They kill him. They put him to death. And in that sense, Jesus' story is not that unique. Lots of people who have been working for the good of the world have been put to death because they were a nuisance to those who are in power. The worst thing that someone can do who is in power, the worst thing that they can do is to put those who, who challenge them to death, to do away with them. And so Paul says, in the cross, we see Jesus dying. We see the evil powers of the world killing God's own son. And yet, we find out that their presumed victory is hollow. The cross doesn't end Jesus' life. In fact, Jesus is resurrected just a few days later, and the power of God, the work of God continues in the world, in Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit, and in, a, in and through the church. In other words, Paul says that the cross has made a fool out of those evil authorities of the world. It's shown just how foolish they are because the worst thing they can do, the most powerful thing they can do is to put Jesus to the death and even that didn't work. We often think about Jesus there on the cross dying. Some have taught in, in classic theology that, that in those three days when Jesus is on the tomb, that Jesus goes down to hell, that Jesus goes down to Sheol and has something of a showdown with Satan. And Jesus redeems all the lost souls that have been in Sheol. That Jesus has sealed this eternal victory. And then, of course, Jesus is resurrected on Easter Sunday. This is, this is Jesus the victor, right? That even in death, God's power cannot be defeated. And so we shouldn't have to fear the evil powers around us because God has already won. Now, those three are, are kind of technical theories that involve a little bit of Bible study and a little bit of thinking. The one that perhaps many of us land on is what is sometimes described as the moral influence theory or, or the holy love theory. In other words, for many of us, when we look at the cross and we think about Jesus' crucifixion on Good Friday, what we see happening there is humanity at its very worst uh, Jesus' friends have betrayed him and turned against him. Some of his family is there weeping and watching. The religious leaders and the secular leaders have seen to it that he be put to death. And yet, God in Jesus has responded with patience and grace and love and care and peacefulness. Even on the cross, Jesus says, forgive them, they do not know what they're doing. Even on the cross, Jesus is ministering to those who are being crucified alongside him. For many of us, when we look at the cross, no theories or Bible studies, when we look at the cross, we simply see humanity at its very worst, including ourselves. This is the worst thing we could do to put God's own son to death, and yet we did it. And while we see humanity at its very worst, we see God at God's very best still offering love, compassion, forgiveness, and care, even in this terrible moment of seemingly defeat and loss. So for many of us, when we see the cross, we are simply moved in our spirit as we again remember what God did for us despite our shortcomings, as we re remember God's love poured out for us despite the fact that we don't deserve it, 
And so as we worship and as we look toward the cross, we are just overcome with awe. Who is this God that would save us this way? What a loving and gracious Lord he is. Surely, we would hope to follow him. Today we read from John chapter 3. That included a few verses that you know well. I read that longer text to remind you that to get to John 3.16, we have this story with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a, a Jewish leader, a Jewish religious leader. He comes to Jesus asking, what's going on? You've been doing some impressive signs. What is it that you're really trying to tell us? And Jesus says, well, what I'm really trying to tell you is you must be born again. You must be born again. And that's a wonderful phrase. That's kind of become an evangelical checkbox, right? You've got to be born again. You've got to be saved, right? But then the story goes on, and he says, the way you're going to be born again, it's kind of like when Moses lifted up the servant, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. And, and for anyone to be born again, it'll be in and through this life of the Son of Man that was given over on the cross. In other words, when we look at the cross, whether we think about it in terms of sacrifice or healing or, or cosmic victory or holy love, when we look at the cross, we are seeing just how seriously God takes our sin and shortcomings and how far God is willing to go for the sake of our transformation. In other words, when we look at the cross, we, we shouldn't see that we are just going to continue in our lives of sin forever. It's not inevitable that we would just go on sinning, being the same old people with the same brokenness and the same hang-ups. You can be born again, Jesus tells Nicodemus and Jesus tells us. And the way in which you'll be born again is in and through the power of the cross, in and through Jesus' death and resurrection. We're about two or three weeks from celebrating Easter and Holy Week. I hope your mind and your heart, your spirit are kind of following this story. That as we look to the cross, we of course see Jesus crucified. But we should also see our own, our own souls being transformed, being born again. Not just one time when we were 10 or 11 or 12, not just in confirmation, but throughout our lives, being renewed and transformed by nothing less than the cross of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we do give thanks for the cross. It is a terrible scene, a terrible thought to imagine Christ, the Son of God, dying there. And yet, God, we pray that as we see the cross, we would see the price you paid for the transformation of our souls. God, may we learn to live into this good news with hope in our hearts, especially in this season of Lent as we prepare to celebrate Easter. May we be transformed. May we be born again. May our lives of sin and brokenness be forgiven and cleansed. May we live according to your grace and love. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparacle.org. May God bless you this week.